So if you're in that range, you can do a lot, you can spend a lot of time there. You can ride there. You can do multiple intervals there, three times 20, three times 40, whatever. Um, and so you get a lot of training bang for your buck. That Triathlon Show, episode 103. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Hunter Allen, who needs almost no introduction. We talk about training with power meters, and as always, we get into specifics, the nitty-gritty details, like weekly structure suggestions and workout suggestions, just to name a few. And we also talk about a new cycling motion analysis device called the Leomo Type R, which Hunter has used with many athletes to great success so far. As I said, Hunter is a well-known name, to say the least, in the industry, uh, probably mostly from writing or co-authoring the book uh, Training and Racing with a Power Meter with Dr. Andy Coggan. And this book, as I say in the interview, is probably the one book that has been recommended the most times of all my interview guests on all interviews I've done. I haven't done the math or calculated it, but I'm pretty sure it is because it's so, so frequent. He also co-wrote the book Cutting Edge Cycling with past guest of the show, Stephen Chung. And check those episodes out as well. I'll link to them in the show notes. He is the founder of Peaks Coaching Group and is a former professional cyclist himself. And now since has been many years in coaching and has coached a number of professional and Olympic athletes. So before we go into the interview with Hunter, let's thank our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration. Andy Blow, the founder of Precision Hydration, listened to episode 49 to hear more from him. He wrote a post recently for 220 Triathlon on how much fluid loss is acceptable during an Ironman and concluded that around about 2-4% is likely acceptable, but not more than that. And even 2-4% over a long, long day out like an Ironman, that requires a lot of drinking. And if you just drink water or or even normal sports drink that doesn't have that much electrolytes, then you will definitely start to deplete your electrolyte stores and that will impair performance and increase the risk of cramping. So check them out on precisionhydration.com to get your electrolyte products there and you can get your first box for free until the end of February when using the discount code that triathlon show all one word. This episode is also sponsored by Triathlon Corner, the triathlon webshop that can be found on triathlon-corner.store. If you're in the market for anything from running shoes to wetsuits to power meters and bike computers, they've got it and they've got plenty of great deals for all of those things. Of course, they ship worldwide and as I mentioned many times, Jan, who is the owner, provides excellent customer service. We talk a little bit about uh, dual versus single-sided power meters in the interview with Hunter and I I just saw that Triathlon Corner, they have uh, the Garmin vectors, which I use myself as my power meters and uh, they're dual-sided. You can get them in a single-sided version as well, but I use the dual-sided version and they're absolutely, absolutely brilliant power meters. I highly recommend them. Easy to transfer from bike to bike. So check that out on triathlon-corner.store. 
All right, let's not wait any longer. Let's go right into the interview with Hunter Allen. All right, so today on That Triathlon Show, it's my great pleasure to welcome Hunter Allen to the show. How are you, Hunter? I'm doing great, Michael. Thanks for uh, having me on today. It's a, it's a pleasure. And one question that I always ask all the interviewees after my interviews is, uh, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon or endurance sports? And, and I think that your book that you and, and Dr. And Andy Cogan wrote, Training and Racing with a Power Meter, is I haven't calculated it, but I'm pretty sure that that's the most recommended book, blog, or resource. So, so yeah, it will be, be good to, to talk a little bit about that, about power training on on the bike but for for triathlon specifically so so let's just start and we have discussed power meters quite a bit before on the show so let's cover this first question quite quickly but that's okay. a, a breakdown of why training with power is such an ad- advantage and if you have an example of athletes that have made big breakthroughs when starting training with a power meter Sure, certainly. Well, one of the things that makes it uh, so such a big advantage is that it's it's so easily quantifiable, and so uh, you know we're we're measuring the amount of work that you can do on a bicycle, and that's really you know the the critical piece. Before you know we've we've had rate of perceived exertion, so we knew oh well, this felt hard or this feels harder, et cetera, and then we went to heart rate monitors, which gave us started to quantify you know uh, how how what was our intensity, and really that's what heart heart rate is, I like to call it the intensity or the intention of your intensity. It's how hard you are trying to go. So, but at the same time, it doesn't measure your work rate. So how much work you do. So really looking at a power meter and saying, okay, well, here's our, the watts that I can produce for an hour or 20 minutes or five minutes or whatever it is. That's how much work you can do. So the first part of that is, is really knowing, okay, that I have a, a tool that I can measure improvements by. Secondly, then I can use that as a measuring tool in order to assure that I'm riding in the correct training area. And so that's one of the things that, you know, why we do a test. So we get your, 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 what your FTP is or functional threshold power. In, and then we figure out your training zones from that. And once we've got the training zones and, you know, it's not a guarantee, but it's, it's pretty darn close to a guarantee that, hey, when you're riding between, uh, let's say, for example, 91 and 105 percent of your FTP, you're training your lactate threshold. You're actually training the system that you want to train and therefore you should get some benefit from that. So once we can we can we can kind of understand that hey we're training that system we can track how much time we train that system and then we can see well how does what's the response and how did that person improve and we can change you can track the improvements of that so those are some really just quick ways to kind of think about that um, and and uh, yeah. How, how much uncertainty is there in uh, using heart rate? Because I think that's where most athletes come from before starting to use a power meter. They are generally these days using heart rate. But but if you prescribe like a lactate threshold heart rate zone, a zone four, or depending on which system you use, uh, how how much can that vary really? Do you have any quantifiable answer to that, or or just thoughts and ideas around that topic? Right. Well, I mean, it is it is uh, very individual, so uh, that is tough to say. But you know, you know, when, when you think about heart rate, it is one of those deals where it's like, hey, we've got um, 
you know, how much sleep you got last night, how much caffeine you've had, whether you're in a hot and humid environment uh, versus, you know, a cool environment. So it is a, a tremendous uh, variable that, that we always look at. And there's also fatigue. So one example is, uh, you know, I had a, an athlete that was training for uh, the, the national championships and he was really, you know, really focused, really wanted to win the national championships. And so in the last uh, four weeks building up to the, to the national championships, the, you know, you have the, the week of the race. So that's kind of the taper race the week before that week. So two weeks out from the race, that's a rest week. And so it was those first two weeks, really, and he was just, you know, he was tired. He was, but he was very focused, wanted to push himself really hard, wanted to go and and make the most of it. So what um, what we did was we, uh, we, you know, I gave him a bunch of intervals to do. And I said, okay, you got to do these intervals each day. And, and he started out with uh, his normal threshold heart rate, the heart rate he could maintain for about an hour or so was around 175 beats per minute. Now his FTP, his functional threshold power for that same heart rate, was around 350 watts. So a very good athlete. He had definitely had a chance at winning the national championship. But you know, by the end of the week, he was, he was tired. He couldn't get his heart rate above 170. But he was still doing the workouts, so he was still hitting his numbers that he was trying that I had prescribed to him and his in his wattage goals. And so he had a, a weekend there. We had a nice rest day after that first week hard. The next week he goes out and, and he actually had uh, worked with a, a local um, guy who was motor pacing him because he wanted to ride behind a motorcycle. He knew that he could get even faster and have somebody push him even more in that final week. So he went out the first day and you know he, his heart rate was 165 was the highest. That was after the weekend. So all of a sudden now we're 10 beats down on what he was previously, you know, norm his was because he was so fatigued, but he's now hitting 360, 370 watts all the time. No problem. Hitting these intervals and knocking them, just doing it. And he calls me up, man, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, but I'm doing the wattage. My heart rate's, you know, 10 beats lower than normal. What do I do? I was like, just keep doing them. Do them again. You know, if you can do them again tomorrow, then don't worry about the heart rate. He goes out the next day, Heart rate comes up to 163 at the very end of the session. Most of the time it's around 160. But now he's doing 370, 380, even did 390 for a five-minute effort. Um, and, you know, what do I do? Well, just keep doing it, man. You're hitting the watts. You're still, gain, you're still getting improvement from these workouts. So the next day it goes by. You know, he barely even hits 160 again. Again, boom, 380, 370, 390, you know, amazing numbers. So based on that, he, he continued to improve, right? So then I finally rest him. Okay, time for rest. At the end of the rest week, after he's had a chance to recover, his cardiovascular system's recovered, now his heart rate is up, is even higher than it was, was normally. His threshold heart rate is now like 178, 180, and now he's hitting almost 400 watts on all of his intervals. So had we decided to just stop the training based on his heart rate, 
he would have lost probably four or five really critical days in the final build of uh, leading up to national championships. That uh, that would have been that could have been the difference, and he ended up winning the national championships. Um, and it was you know we had a great race, and he maintained like 178, 180 the whole time in his um, in his Olympic distance uh, triathlon. Yeah, great example, and I think that's something that uh, that many listeners uh, and myself uh, as well can uh, can really recognize that it, when you're in a heavy block of training, getting that heart rate up becomes more difficult, even if you're hitting your numbers. So, so yeah, uh, that's uh, that's a good one. What about for those people that athletes that don't have a power meter? They they have used heart rate for example and they want to get one or they have just gotten one how do you get started what are the most important steps and things to to do when you first get started with one right well for certain you've got to capture data so for really for the first couple of weeks um all you're trying to do is just capture data and learn about the power data itself so what is 300 watts is that hard is that you know easy for you um how how hard can you go up a, a steep hill for a minute um you know what is your what what can you do on a long ride you know what's your average watts or normalized power on a long ride so you're kind of capturing data for the first couple of weeks in that time period i really like to do some testing so I really want to do what, what we call is uh, you got to do your FTP test, your functional threshold power test. And that's as has always been, you know, the best power you can maintain in a what's called a quasi steady state until you start fatiguing, which is generally around an hour. So basically what you can do around an hour. Um, most people and, and Andy and I set that at an hour because we said, hey, you know, most people's goal is to have a 40k time trial or, or uh, effort under an hour. If you can do 40k under an hour, you're doing something. And so that was one of the things that we wanted to do, and that was known around the world as kind of a standard. Now, so that's the best. You go for an hour, you do your best. But if you don't have an hour, and, or if you don't have a location to get an hour, which in a lot of places around the world is nearly impossible to find a road that's 30 minutes long without stoplights or some kind of uh, uh, you know obstruction or something. So you could do a 20-minute test. And a 20-minute test, from there, you can take between 3 and, say, 7% of that 20-minute test. And that's really going to probably be close to what your hour power is. Now, averages about 5% or so. Some people are going to be seven. Some people are going to be two. Some people are going to be nine, even maybe even outlier. So don't you know? Don't always expect that. Hey, my 20-minute power is going to be exactly my hour power. Um, but again, it's a, a way to at least get a starting point. From there, then what we do is um, you have to do what we call the power profile test, and so that is a uh, one-minute effort where you go all out for a minute because that represents what's called your anaerobic capacity. So we need to understand what your anaerobic ability is. Then we do a five minute test and that represents your VO2 max. So that is uh, something that, you know, how much, how much, how many watts can you put out while you're at a very high respiration rate uh, and you're pushing yourself really hard, but also more aerobically uh, because five minutes is much more aerobic than the one minute test. 
And then uh, maybe not so applicable for all triathletes, uh, maybe for a draft legal triathlete. Um, but, you know, for cyclists, for sure, we want to get your sprint power. So we want to get you to do a, a, a 10 or 15 second sprint, a few of them. And what we'll take is the best five seconds of that sprint. And then we can use that to find out, okay, where is your neuromuscular power? Your ability to create a high amount of force and how quickly can you do that? So when you know these four things, and again, this is called the power profile, that, you know, and, and that's something that we've come up with. Oh, I think we introduced the power profile in 2003, maybe, or something. So it's been around a long time. Um, when you get those things together, then that gives you a clear picture of your strengths and weaknesses. So, um, you know, you just kind of have to keep that in mind of, of what you do. But that's really the start. Like once you've got that, you've got your FTP, you can set your training zones. Okay, where are my training zones? Then you've got your power profile testing done. You know your strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, and regarding the training zones, I've done an episode on, on that. So I'll link to that in the show notes and, and also link to where the listeners can directly calculate those zones based on, on their testing. Uh, this is uh, what you just said about the power profiling test and testing in general. Uh, that's, this is a good place to insert a listener question that I got from Dan uh, when I posted on, on Facebook that, I, that I'm having this interview. So he, he asked about what do you think about Sufferfest's 4DP test and how it compares to uh, not necessarily the power profiling but the general 20 minute ftp testing protocol right so the 40p i mean that's basically the power profile test i mean they want you to do the same basic tests that we've had uh you know that we established again back in 2003 so it's nothing new really um and and i think that you maybe know, they you did want... a better trailer than you did <laughs> exactly exactly what's uh what's old is new again right that's the saying um you know and uh it is what it is i mean if you want to understand your strengths and weaknesses that's the way to do it you know and and uh you know there, there's nothing new about it what they do new is that they then use that to basically help prescribe workouts for you and 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 again i mean that's a great way to do it because that's what your strengths and weaknesses are. So you'd want to prescribe workouts based off of what your physio physiology is. Uh, and, and for me, I mean, that's what, that's part of what a coach does, uh, is to, Hey, well, what's, what, what's, what are your strengths and weaknesses? And, uh, that they've done a great job at, at pulling that together and putting it in the kind of an online training solution in, uh, indoors. Yeah, yeah. And I guess a lot of the differences really, they, they come when you get significantly above FTP because that's where the the form of the, the shape of the curve starts to really change a lot more compared to from FTP and, and, and below. But let's not go into that too much uh, anymore. That, that was just great to get that in at that point. So let's move back to, uh, for those athletes that, that already have been using power meters, they have been using power zones and, and have been doing their threshold workouts, their sweet spot workouts, their VO2 max workouts based on, on those zones. Uh, they have the fundamentals in, in place, essentially. Uh, what are, are the next like, big levers, the next steps that they can take to make the most out of their use of power meters and, and become more advanced power users? Right, right. So 
the next step then is to really uh, first off um, define the demands of the event. So whatever the demands of the event are are really the the next piece because uh, and and so we always have these kind of big picture demands. Okay, I'm gonna do a half Ironman. All right. Well, you know exactly how far you're gonna have to ride in the half Ironman. Okay, and so that's just a known, but at the same time, maybe there it includes a, a 30 minute climb inside that half Ironman. Maybe it includes uh, 15 hills that are each two minutes long inside that half Ironman. So whatever those things are, you need to define to define the demands of the event first. And then we start training to the demands of the event. So let's say, for example, if we're doing a half Ironman that's very hilly, and we know that there are 15 small hills, uh, and they're all at least two minutes long in the first half of it, and the second half, there are another 15 hills, but these are longer hills, let's say they're three-minute hills, then we know that you're going to have to do 30 hill repeats you know, that are going to be probably around your FTP, during the actual bike ride. If you're not doing 30 hill repeats in your training, then you're not training specifically. So that's another way to, to start to use your power meter because it's like, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do these hills and I'm going to do them at my FTP and I'm going to make sure that my wattage is correct so that I really know exactly what I need to do and I'm preparing for that. So that's one of the next steps. As a more advanced user, one of the things that I also uh, recommend learning is the quadrant analysis tools. Quadrant analysis tells us how you create the power, okay? Because 300 watts is 300 watts is 300 watts, but you can create it differently. So let's say, for example, if you want, you could you could stick um, your bike in the big chain ring in the front, let's say that's a 53 tooth, and you could put it in the 14 in the back, and you could create 300 watts by pedaling slowly at 60 RPM, but really with a lot of force, so pushing very hard on the pedal. So that might be one way to create that 300 watts. Or you could create 300 watts by pedal, putting it in the small chain ring, let's say that's a 39 tooth, and pedaling in the 17 in the back, and now you're spinning at a very high cadence. So maybe now you're at 120 RPM, and you have very low force on the pedals. So that's a different way to create those watts. So it's important to understand how you create them, and what are the demands of the event. Right? The biggest mistake that I see most triathletes make is that they pedal too slowly. They're in uh, what we call quadrant three or quadrant two of quadrant analysis. They're pedaling too slow with too much force. And what that does is, is it, it uses the muscle glycogen out of the muscles, right? Because you're trying to, to contract the muscles at too high of a force. Um, so you're using more energy and that really hurts you on the run. Uh, some of the best triathletes that I've seen, uh, and actually it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it is the gold standard. I mean, it's what the best triathletes do. They pedal with a little less force and a higher cadence in the bike. You know, they're pedaling around 90 RPM, 90 to 95 RPM. 
they're saving their legs, they're saving muscle glycogen by pedaling at a little higher cadence, a little less force that helps them on the run. So a quadrant analysis is really critical to understand, especially for the triathlon world, because it, it helps you to understand how do I actually create these watts in an event and you know, am I creating them in the wrong quadrant? If so, I can ch make that change in training, and then I can assure myself. So, so, so sorry, Hunter. Can, can you can you expand upon what what you mean with with the quadrants for those listeners that are not familiar with uh, with the quadrant analysis? Sure, sure. So um, when you when you kind of think of a, think of an X Y plot, uh, and in the X Y plot you have a um, you know in the center you kind of have a crosshairs there. So the if you're looking at the plot itself. Um, on the x-axis, you have force, or sorry, you have cadence. And so on the x-axis, you have cadence down on the bottom, the horizontal line. And so as you go to the right, you have more force. And then on the y-axis, as it goes vertically, that one is really force. So all the way up is a high force. So if you kind of look at the, the, the crosshairs, then you would say, okay, high force and high cadence, all right, that would be sprinting. So if you're not a sprinter, you don't have to worry about that. Most triathletes don't. Um, so that would be quadrant one. Then if you move to the left, then you have high force and low cadence. That's typically like mountain biking. That's typically um, you know going really hard up a steep hill, uh, low cadence and high force. But I see way too many triathletes in quadrant two where they're high force, low cadence. Come down, now we have, uh, on the left side still, we have now low force and low cadence. Okay, so this is kind of just endurance riding or riding to the coffee shop, not putting out a lot of force, not putting out a lot of uh, cadence there. Then the last one on the far right, on the bottom right, then we have a lot of cadence, so 100 RPM, 120 RPM, but not much force. This is what we might do in a group ride, you know, or a, a fast race if you're in a, a bike race or a criterium, you know, or a pace line where you've got to stay close to the wheel in front of you. So you keep your cadence high and force low so you can respond to speed changes really quickly. Brilliant. And I'll try to include a, an image of, of that quadrant in, in the show notes so people can go and have a look at that. One thing I want to to ask a little bit more about this because we've had for example Stephen Chung who you co-wrote Cutting Edge uh, Cycling with on on the show before and we talked a little bit about cadence and uh, and pedaling efficiency uh, I guess and and he mentioned that in doing his research for for uh, the cycling science book that they found that most cyclists and athletes tend to gravitate towards the cadence that is most efficient for them but i guess we're talking about mechanical efficiency in that case and what you're talking about here when you want athletes to go a bit higher cadence lower force that that's different because it's a metabolic efficiency and and or is that a correct interpretation yeah, I think that that's where, um, you know, you have to be careful with, with one, the, the use of the word efficiency, because, um, you know, it's, it's always one of those little, especially in English, it's like this weird catch, you know, catchphrase a little bit. So, but yeah, we're, we're thinking of it in terms of, it's really more about economy. Okay, so thinking about it from a, a perspective of saving energy or producing more power with less energy. Okay, so that's really what we're talking about is both ways. So 
both, okay, I'm going to make sure that I'm, I'm being economical with um, putting out uh, energy as I pedal. So I'm going to pedal at a little bit higher cadence, a little lower force, which is less energy than pedaling with a, you know, a slower RPM at 70 or 80 RPM, but higher force. And then two, you know, that kind of that translates as well into the metabolic side as well of, you know, of, of economy and saying, okay, it's really, I'm saving energy because now my body doesn't have to use as much glycogen, doesn't have to pump as much, much blood, all of these things. So yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, is there anything else that we should cover in uh, for the people that want that are more advanced users of power meters and anything really important that that we should mention? You know, I mean, I think most people don't know it, but one of the things that's really critical is the uh, performance manager chart. That's one of the charts that we created in uh, Training Peaks WKO software, and it's an outstanding, outstanding way to uh, quantify and understand that you, um, you know, when when you're when you're too fatigued, when you're fresh, when you uh, can peak. And how you you know how your freshness relates to um, peaking and and doing your very best. Now, one of the things that that comes up with is what we did was we created Andy and I created a score called Training Stress Score, and that gives a score for every ride. So every time you go out on a ride, it's based off of um, the fact that uh, you know. How much how much time close to your FTP did you ride, and you know and and basically what was the intensity? So we look at the time and the intensity as you get closer to your FTP, and we give you a score for each of those minutes at FTP or above your FTP or less than your FTP. So you end up getting a TSS, a training stress score. The gold standard is again back to an hour. You do an hour as hard as you can then you get 100 TSS, all right? So 100 TSS. One of the goals as a Ironman triathlete is to um, do your Ironman bike uh, and do it at less than 300 training stress score points. If you do it at less than 300 TSS, then you're going to have a very good shot at having a good run. You do it over, that's going to be tough. So, Understanding training stress score is really critical. So every single ride you do, you get a training stress score for. You need to record that information. That TSS goes into your performance manager chart so we can look at it and see how fatigued are you, how uh, fresh are you, all those things. So yeah, yeah. those two things are really important. Brilliant. And and I'll link to another episode that I did on Training Peaks and, and a lot of it is on the performance manager chart. So so I'll link to that as well. And and uh, there are some other benchmarks. Uh, yeah, that's that's a good one that you mentioned about the TSS for an Ironman ride. So so the interested listener can go and have a look at that. I think it's episode 39. I'm making a mental note to figure that out for the show notes. Uh, one, I'll, yeah, this is another good uh, place to insert a listener question. And uh, this is, uh, let's, uh, let's keep it brief uh, because we could talk about this for, for ages. But uh, uh, in, uh, in a few sentences, uh, best ways to raise FTP and VO2 max the fastest while training for a 70.3. Easy, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, I mean, to me, one of the best ways to do it, so if you look at FTP, um, think of FTP as a table, okay? So it's a table just like your, your desk, and think of it the top of the table, right? Now, everybody has a table, and when you start out in the beginning, you start out and your table is relatively close to the floor, okay? The top of the table is pretty close. Your FTP is low. Let's say it's 180 watts or something like that, or 150. As you get better and better, your table gets a little bit taller, a little bit taller, a little bit taller. Now, the length of the table still is an hour, right? It still takes an hour to get across the table. The difference is the height of the table. Eventually, you can become, you know, the best in the world, and your table is all the way at the ceiling of your, of your room, okay? But... How do you pick a table up? Well, you don't just put your hands on the top of the table and try and lift it up as if you had, you know, uh, suction cups on your fingers, right? You can't do that, all right? So what do we do? We come just underneath the table, right? And just right there in the underneath it, and you lift it up, you push it up from just underneath the top of the table. Now, you can take your fingernails and you can stick them in the edge of the table around the edge and you can lift it up that way, but it's kind of painful, all right? So that's that's one way to think of it. So what do we do to lift FTP, right? So one, we need to ride just underneath it, okay? So that means riding... Well, what, is, what is just underneath it in the percentage of FTP? Yeah, so what we, we call that the sweet spot and that's usually around 88 to 93% of your FTP. So if you're in that range, you can do a lot, you can spend a lot of time there, you can ride there, you can do multiple intervals there, three times 20, three times 40, whatever. Um, and so you get a lot of training bang for your buck. And it doesn't, it's not that hard, right? You can, you can do it, it's gonna take focus, it's gonna be like you're gonna have a little bit of suffering there. But that's different than riding right at your FTP. 100% to 105% of your FTP, you got to do that too. I mean, that's going to improve your FTP as well, and there's time for that too. But those are going to be, you know, four times 10 minutes, three times 15 minutes, two times 20 minutes, you know, building up so that you can really be intense and you can deal with that for a short period of time and then beginning to building up towards the end. So those two things are critical. Work on your sweet spot first, then work on your right at your FTP next. To do VO2 max, there's no magic bullet there. It is three to eight, three to eight minute intervals. So three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, eight minutes between 106 and 120 percent of your FTP. So you could do seven times three minutes, three minutes on, three minutes off at a, uh, around 120 percent. You could do five times five, five minutes on, five minutes off at 115 percent. You could do uh, six, or let's say four times eight minutes, if you wanted to, at 106%. So all those things are going to improve your FTP, and you're just going to have to make sure that uh, you know you're doing you're doing them and, and getting enough of that work in. We decided because I, I see quite it's quite commonly to do we have two max workouts, just, uh, a lot of two minute intervals. Would you, you mentioned they're three to eight minutes. Would you say that the two minutes is uh, too short in this case and uh, you don't really rev up your, your system enough to, to really reach VO2 max? Uh, exactly. I, exa that's exactly it. You know, by doing them only two minutes, you're really still, uh, um, a lot of anaerobic capacity is still being uh, really addressed. You're still in that that system. 
uh, you're not becoming, it's not long enough to get aerobic enough. So you need to kind of shift over by getting to three minutes, you're more aerobic. Uh, you have a chance to get your breathing, your respiration rate really high, but also maintain it and put it into a rhythm. You know, maybe it's only the last 30 seconds you get it into a rhythm, but you're getting it into a rhythm. And then, uh, you know, you're creating enough time there so that there is uh, an adaptation. You're going to get an adaptation. At two minutes, it's just not enough to really get a, uh, create enough training stress, and it's too anaerobic. Mm, yep. Okay. Uh, so, and another listener question that, that is uh, a good one and related to this is uh, how much super threshold work overall in the training plan do you tend to have if you, I don't know how many triathletes you, you coach yourself, but you have coaches within the Peaks Coaching Group, at least coaching triathletes. So, so I'm sure you can speak for, for them or yeah, to just answer that first, do you, do you coach a lot of triathletes or is most mostly cyclists at this point? You know, I, it is kind of one of those things. Um, we do both um, triathletes and cyclists. Um, I've got one triathlete I coach right now, but generally I always have at least one or two triathletes, and then the rest are, are, uh, are cyclists. Right. Uh, so so how much superficial work in general, whether that's just above the, uh, the threshold FTP or, or right at threshold or then those harder VO2 max workouts or even anaerobic workouts, do you do you prescribe for 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 athletes, for age group triathletes for long distance training? Well, I like VO2 max workouts because it does improve your FTP. So back to our analogy about the table. And, um, you know, another way you can pick up a table is you could screw a hook down into the top of the table and pick it up from the top, right? So you'd have a, you know, just screw a hook down in the top and another one in there and pick it up. Well, that would, you could pull up your FTP that way. And that's a VO2 max workout. You know, you're pulling it up from the top. That helps there. The problem is if you put too many holes, too many hooks in your table, then you're going to weaken the table itself and it's going to collapse on it. So you have to be careful. You can't overdo that VO2 max. I like to do, especially leading up to the season, leading up to um, the effort itself, you know, or, or any event itself, um, you know, you're going to do something at least once a week at VO2 max. So you need to address that system because, again, it will definitely improve your FTP. And, hey, you know, a lot of people say, well, well why, why do I really want to improve my FTP? It's like, well, it's the same thing as, you know, why would you want to improve your average speed? Hey, if you're going to if your average speed is 30 kilometers an hour and you improve it to 37 kilometers an hour, you're going to finish faster. You're going to finish in a shorter time. It's going to be faster. You're going to do better. Same thing with this is like, hey, we've got to improve your FTP. If it goes from 150 watts to 210 watts, you are now going to do so much better in your category and finish stronger uh, at the end. So we've got to improve it. That's a critical piece to that. So if if you have a draft fleet and uh, and let's say it's a kind of a the nor your normal time restricted age grouper uh, that still wants to compete at a fairly high level in their age group, how do you get the best bang for your? How do you typically uh, set up their their weekly structure? Let's say we're in the build phase, so we're maybe two months out of of the race from the race or so. What what does that look like in terms of the types of workouts, cycling workouts they do? Yep. So from two months out, you know, we're still going to be doing uh, probably at the beginning of that phase, 
uh, some sweet spot work, so you're still getting in your sweet spot, but definitely transitioning into lots of FTP work at that point. Um, I'm a big fan of 10 minutes, 15 minute intervals because again, they're they're short, they're not super intense. Uh, well, they are intense, but they're not super long, rather, um, and you can do them for for that period of time, and you get most people really improve with that kind of a uh, an effort. Those are going to be done at 105 percent of your FTP. You're focused on your FTP. You're you're really going to improve it, and you're going to make it make it better. So I would definitely start to do that. FTP work is going to be done twice a week, and then you're going to get VO2 max work where um, at least once a week you've got some VO2 max in there. It's going to be one of those things where um, you know you've got um, uh, you know it, it's going to be you can integrate the two together, right? So maybe you end up doing an FTP workout on Tuesday, you end up doing a, uh, a another workout on Thursday where you do um, VO2 max now, and then maybe on Saturday you even combine them and you say, well, you know what, I'm going to do what I call the kitchen sink workout, and um, you know do a little bit of everything. We're going to do a three or four hour long ride, five hour long ride. We're going to do endurance. We're going to do VO2 max. We're going to do um, FTP. We're going to do some sweet spot. We're going to just kind of get everything done. So, you know, that, those are good ways to do it. Brilliant. Uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, the Leomo Type R. I don't even know if I pronounce Leomo correctly. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, that's correct. That, that's a, a new device, and I first heard of it through your uh, the Peaks uh, Coaching Group newsletter. Uh, can you just briefly describe what it is and how that can be beneficial in addition to power meters? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what what that is is they this company in Japan uh, has created a device that has five motion sensors. The motion sensors you put two of them on the top of your leg, uh, just underneath your cycling shorts. Uh, then you put two on the top of your cycling shoes, and then you put one on your lower back. And then so. Each one measures different movements. So the ones on your shoes can measure how your foot moves around the pedal on the and for each RPM. So for every pedal stroke, what does your foot do? Are you pedaling toe down, heel down? Where do you transition? Uh, are there any dead spots in your pedal, pedaling as well? So there's a lot to be learned from that perspective. We can really start to change people's uh, way that they pedal so that they reduce, again, kind of uh, the energy, the wasted energy output. They become more economical so that they, uh, they, the, when they do produce that power, they're producing it and it's going directly into, um, into the cranks. Now, the other one is then on the thighs. So that helps us to understand a little bit um, about how much movement the thighs are moving up and down. So it's called the leg angular range. So the, the, the sensors see like, okay, well this leg moves at 45 degrees of movement and this other one moves at 50 degrees of movement. So why does the one move at 45, the other one move at 50? You know, who knows what the difference is between the two. So then that can help maybe with some bike fit stuff. Then we have the one that fits on the low back, and that really can help you with understanding what's the angle of your pelvis. So that's called the pelvic tilt. 
so this can be a great way to, to uh, improve your aerodynamics as a, uh, a triathlete and know that, okay, if I'm riding at 48 degrees, when I'm at 48 degrees, then I'm as aero as I can be. And so that's going to be one of the metrics that I look at while I'm riding, and uh, it's going to be a, a, a critical piece to that. Also, what happens where your hips rock, they go up and down, the hips can, can rock up and down. Why are they rocking? Uh, and then they can also move forward and backward. Uh, and so all these things can be a great way to measure and see if, well, you know, am I too aggressive in my position? Maybe I'm too far forward. Maybe I'm too, um, you know, my, my upper body is too flat and it's actually um, really reducing the amount of power that I can produce. Even though I'm super aero, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, you know, you really made a, uh, you're too, um, you're too aggressive here. So it's a, it's an incredible tool, especially to being able to see what the dead spot is for each, each person and, and how to change those things. So that dead spot is that? Would you say that it's the biggest benefit of it? And and if that is the case, do you have like uh, any case studies that uh, illustrate that point and then how somebody has been able to improve as a cyclist using uh, the Leomo Type R? Yes, uh, there we have a bunch of those things. They have a great blog, and I've done some videos on it um, as well. And and it, what it is 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 you know one of the examples of. Uh, That, that I've come up that we've had and had again a lot of them but uh, you know I had an athlete that um, we looked at his um, his foot sensors and he had this tr huge dead spot on his left leg and he's a triathlete and um, you know he had a huge dead spot on his left leg when when he came over the top of his pedal stroke so if you're looking at a clock it would be for like from probably around 11 o'clock all the way to two o'clock which was really a large place to have a dead spot and a bad place to have a dead spot because you start you should really start to be producing power at that point. So uh, what we did was, uh, you know, I looked at it, but it was only on one leg. It was only on his left leg, and I was like, man, that's really strange. You know, why is it only on his left leg? So I asked him some questions. I said, hey, you know, uh, it looks like you've got this big dead spot here on your left side. Um, what's going on with, with this left side? And he's like, well, you know, I think that um, I've got a uh, – uh, my, my seat height is a little too low. And I've always th – I thought it has been too low. I just haven't done anything about it. And I said, well, it looks to me like it's a little too low. The right leg had a slight dead spot at the top of the pedal stroke but not as much. I said, so why don't we why don't we raise your seat up just like five millimeters and see if it goes away? And so we raised his seat up five millimeters, and immediately his dead spot on his left leg went away. It opened up his hip angle, and you know, and, and he was able to uh, lengthen out a little bit more, and so his leg was able to go down to the bottom of the pedal stroke and over the top of the pedal stroke even better. So. It was something that, that we were able to do. Now, we, we made a small change to his handlebars as well that helped um, raise them up just about, mm, uh, it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a five millimeters, um, just a, a, like a three millimeter spacer. Um, that opened up his chest some more. So all of a sudden, we made some really quick changes that, that made a big difference for him. Brilliant. Yeah, that's great. Final question before we move into the rapid fire questions. And uh, hey, let's keep this pretty brief. But uh, 
if somebody is about to go and get a power meter, do you recommend dual-sided or, or single-sided power meters? Yeah, you know, I really like to have the dual-sided ones because I really want to see what's happening between both sides. I really want to know, is the left leg stronger or weaker? Is it releasing more power um, than the other side? Or is it absorbing more power? And that's really what it is because, you know, one thing that you know we often forget about is that, you know, when you press down on the left leg, it's the right leg going up on the other side that's resisting. Okay, so you can you can resist that, um, and you know when the right leg pushes down, it's the left leg resisting. So a lot of times it's it's that I call it a phase. The left leg forward, the right leg is back. That's the left phase. And then that way it's like, well, we got to find out what's your dominant phase, and then can we reduce the absorption? You know, because a lot of times that absorbing, that absorption is a is a big problem. You know, people absorb too much power. They're very uneconomical with their pedal stroke. And it's like, well, how do we make sure that we, we have, you know, that reduced? So that's one of the things I like with a left-right uh, power meter. There's a bunch of them out there now from pedals to uh, crank arms. So uh, you definitely kind of have to, to find the one that fits for you. And, you know, that's the big question that so many people ask me, well, what's the best power meter? It's like, well, there are a lot of great power meters out there. And it just really depends on your budget. It depends on where you want to measure power, right? Do you want to measure it at your pedals? Do you want to measure your crank? Do you want to measure your wheel? Um, and then it also depends on what kind of bike you have because there's some uh, bike frames out there that you can't even put a crank-based power meter on them. They just don't work. Um, so, you know, you kind of have to keep that in mind too. <laughs> it's funny. I, I had that, that question written down for you. What's, what power meter do you, do you <laughs> recommend? But, uh, yeah, you preempted me with that. So, uh, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. And uh, for the listeners, if you get a dual-sided power meter, at least in the WKO, you can get all of those uh, things that Hunter mentioned about seeing how much uh, force you absorb with the opposing leg and, and so on. And I guess that probably some power meters may have their own dashboards. I, I'm not even sure. I just use WKO4, but Garmin may have something, Garmin Connect, etc. But let's now move into the rapid fire questions. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports and excluding your own books, as good as they are? <laughs> Well, you know, right now I tell you, I'm reading um, Stephen Chung's uh, new book with Inigo Mihuka, um, Cycling Science, and um, it's really well done. Uh, they 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 got a, a bunch of different authors together and and put it all together, and um, he did a great job editing it and getting it all together. Uh, and there's some just great information in that one. So. I'm, that's probably one of my favorites right now, and um, you know I, I think that um, you know it just is a great resource to go back to time and time again. Yeah, and and that book digested into two forty-five minutes episode can be found on on this podcast. In I'll link to that as well, but I think it's sixty-four and sixty-five, or it may be seventy-four and seventy-five. I'm not sure. I'll link to that. Uh, finally, uh, or two more questions. Let's keep these brief because I have like ten percent battery, and that is where it gets a bit tricky. <laughs> okay. So, what do you wish you had known, or wish you had done differently at some point in your career? 
Oh, well, I'll tell you, I wish I had had a coach. Um, you know, I really felt like and that was one of the reasons that I did uh, become a coach was because it allowed me to take people under my wing and shortcut their, their you know, the two years of hit and miss training trial and error that, uh, that I made that mistake. So um, I wish I had a coach. And finally, who is somebody in endurance sports that you look up to? Oh, man, that's a tough question. Um, I look up to a lot of guys, um, you know, and, and uh, they've, they've done so many great things, uh, so many great scientists. I mean, Andy Coggin is certainly one that uh, has been an incredible mentor and, and has taught me a lot over the years and a great friend as well. Same with Stephen Chung. Uh, you know, Joe Friel has done some incredible things with all of his books and his teachings over the years as well. Uh, you know, so, I mean, those guys have been just outstanding. Uh, and, and of course you can't, uh, you know, Dr. Tudor Bompa who wrote, uh, the periodization, um, back in 1968, or I believe, uh, that was really, really good as well. I got to meet him at a, uh, at a seminar one time. So that was really fun. Yeah. And, uh, Joe Friel, I can mention he was also a guest on the show in episode one, actually. So for new listeners, you can go and check that out if you haven't already. All right. So uh, thank you, Hunter. This has been really great. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that the listeners have learned a lot, whether they're just starting or they're more advanced. And and you can uh, your website is peakscoachinggroup.com. And that will be linked to, of course, and uh, in the show notes so people can find out more about you. Is there anything that you wanted to mention before we close off this interview? Uh, no, that's great. Peaks, peakscoachinggroup.com. And, you know, hey, we do uh, camps and seminars all over the world. And, uh, you know, if uh, you're interested in me, in me having uh, coming to do a seminar for you, I'm, I'm available to do that. And uh, we have great coaches here. So if you're looking for a triathlon coach or a cycling coach or anybody to help you shortcut your, uh, your, your steps to success, let us know. I'm glad, we're glad to help. All right. Brilliant. Thanks a lot again for your time and for your sharing your knowledge with us, Hunter. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Michael. So it really was a great pleasure for me talking to Hunter. And I also have to say a big thank you to him for waiting for me for 20 to 30 minutes or so when I was dealing with some weird technical issues that uh, cropped up with my microphone when we were about to get started. So he couldn't hear me, I could hear him. And uh, that was obviously really frustrated and we thought that we may have to reschedule, which is always a bit of a hassle and, and not something that we like, but... I, I found some hidden settings that got my microphone working again. So, and Hunter patiently waited. So, big thanks for that. My key takeaways from this episode I really liked the table analogy of how to raise your FTP. Uh, so, so, that's a really good, good way to illustrate it and how you can raise the table by, by pushing from just below. But, and, but to some extent, you can also drill holes and, and attach hooks and lift it up. But if you do that too much, then you, then you really weaken the structure of it. So that was a good analogy by Hunter on how to improve your FTP. The second takeaway is that in that weekly structure of a triathlete's cycling training, there wasn't a lot of messing around in there in that example. It was definitely quality throughout, which, uh, which makes sense in, in a way when you consider that you the cycling is, isn't as uh, risky as running 
Although that should be said, some some coaches will definitely have different opinions than that. But but I think that what what Hunter suggested suggested might well work. And to be honest, that's what at least last year what what I did myself for my training, and I th- think that that worked really really well on on the bike for me. Uh, so so yeah, basically three or four rides per week, and and all of them had some quality, some intensity to them. Almost all of them, I had some recovery rides for sure, but but a lot of it was was really quality. The final takeaway is uh, the quadrant analysis and uh, the high cadence uh, argument that Hunter provided. Uh, there, yeah, that's that's a very interesting interesting thing to to look at and consider. And again, there are arguments for both sides. Let's uh, not beat around the bush with that one. Some people, like for example, Brett Sutton, is a, a famous proponent of the low cadence. Variant and some of his athletes, like Daniela Reef, they they use a lowish cadence, and and there are other really good athletes as well that that use that. But uh, yeah, it, that that's why it's great to have these different interviews and hear different perspectives. And I can't say myself that I've seen any research of it, although I have heard about a research study that came to the same conclusion that Hunter did that. Uh, metabolically you're more efficient you save glycogen stores uh, if you use a higher cadence so you apply less force to each pedal stroke which especially in in uh, long course races uh, is beneficial then again for short course races you have the argument that if you want to stay on uh, the wheel of the guy in front of you then you can't be in a in too higher gear because then when you're coming out of corners you will have a really hard time accelerating and things like that so again there are arguments for both sides great to to hear them and great to hear Hunter's perspective, which was definitely one of uh, high cadence versus low cadence. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode on thattriathlonshow.com. Click through to this uh, episode and uh, make sure to comment there if you have uh, comments, uh, ideas, feedback, uh, questions. And uh, yeah, definitely those comments have been getting getting a bit more active recently. In uh, And I've been getting quite a few comments for many of the episodes, especially the most popular ones. So that's great, and keep it going. Uh, I my inbox is too full, really, to to answer to all emails uh, about specific episodes. So that's why I kind of want to move that to the comments, so that everybody can benefit from from what I write, and and I can't really reply to all emails individually. And once you're there, by the way, click through to the podcast archives if you haven't listen to all episodes and check out all the old episodes because there are a lot of them that that can be real gold for you if you haven't so yeah you'll find it on that there's a blue box there that says click here to access the podcast archives or something like that and and then you'll see all of the episodes listed so yeah go go and have a look at that as well in the next episode of That Triathlon Show, I interview Dean Gollish, who is another Olympic and World Championship medal coach on multiple, multiple, multiple occasions. And we talk about self-coaching and coaching in general, for that matter, and periodization. So this is a very, very interesting one. And if you are currently a self-coached athlete especially, or you're a coach, then this is a must-listen episode. It's very, very thought-provoking and definitely can teach you quite a few things thank you for sponsoring this episode to triathlon corner the online home of shopping the best triathlon products in the world to great prices with worldwide shipping great customer service great brands you can find them on triathlon-corner.store don't waste any time going to the city center go finding a 
sports store and buy your stuff there when you can find all of those things with just a few clicks online at triathlon-corner.store. Thank you also to Precision Hydration on precisionhydration.com. You can go there and take their free online sweat test to find out how much electrolytes and sodium you lose through sweat. And that will allow you to get a tailor-made electrolyte product that usually can have quite a bit more sodium and electrolytes than a normal sports drink because that's not enough for most people. And, and you can get those products and the first of those will be free when you use the discount code that triathlon show all one word when you go to the checkout on precisionhydration.com and for if you have used that uh, for, if you have already bought uh, and ordered then you will get 15% off from listening to that triathlon show thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlon